MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning, and now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Justin Rutherford. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover to hide behind. Detective Weaver said, I'm sure you know why we're here. I was like, what in the world is going on? Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Noel is off on an adventure that we can't disclose yet, but soon. They call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul Deccant. Paul Wilson Deckett, maybe? Is that appropriate for this episode, Matt? I like it. The, you mean, you're talking about the soccer ball? Yes. Okay. Uh, most importantly, you are you and you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Today, we are diving into something that, Matt, you and I explored during our video series. Yes, and it's, I think, our fifth most popular video that we ever made. Really? Yes. Wow. Uh, almost a million down, uh, views at this point. Holy smokes. Still not going to beat that uh, the one about Satan, right? Yeah, Satan will always be at the top. And I'm kind of, I feel very fortunate for both of us that not that many people watched the instructions on how to get away with murder. Yes, uh, less than 50,000, I want to say. Great. But that's still a lot of people. <laughs> that's a lot of people. <laughs> we do we we do tell people not to commit murder, right? We do. At some point in that one. We can take it down. Do you want me to take it down? I you know, you know, I I feel like we did a good job. <laughs> is the thing. Okay. I'm amoral notions aside, it does feel like we did a good job. But uh, yes, we did a video on North Sentinel Island several years ago, uh, more years than I think, uh, well, you probably know, Matt. When did we do that one? I believe it was 2013, but it has been a minute since I looked at it. It's been a while. Uh, So North Sentinel Island has a mystery to it. And if you have seen our earlier video, you might have an inkling about what we're going to dive into today. But to get to this mystery, we have to first explore human beings. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, that's great. Human beings are a species that loves to talk about itself. Yeah, and that's us. (laughs) That's us. That's you. That's you too. Uh, And yes, specifically you. So, Mm Human beings, our species, exist to some degree on every continent, which is insane when you think about it. 
Our tremendous ability to adapt to inhospitable environments has spread us across the planet. In the modern age, technological breakthroughs allow us to communicate instantaneously regardless of our physical location. I mean, just just think of all the podcasts that have, uh, like you and I, prefer to hang out in person in the room, but there are many very uh, successful, very fascinating podcasts with hosts that rarely see each other in person. Much like stuff you missed in history class. Yeah, that's that's actually, I'm surprised I didn't think about that. Yeah, one of our hosts is based in Atlanta on that show and the other in Boston, and they can communicate pretty much instantaneously. Sounds like they're having a conversation in the room. Mm-hmm. And one more thing I just want to add mm-hmm. here. We're talking about the humans, us living on all these continents. We also live on islands that aren't considered a continent all over the planet. That's true. That's true. And even in those spaces, people can communicate thanks to technology. Modernity, it seems, is contagious. But here's the fascinating and somewhat disturbing thing. As we have spread Farther and farther, some groups of humans also became isolated. Those geographical boundaries bedeviled us. Impassable mountains, shifting ice, dense, dangerous jungles, rising seas, and treacherous currents. To your point about islands, right? Mm -hmm. All, All played a role in keeping some groups of human beings hidden from the progress and the curses of global society. And, you know, we've all... Like you've heard these stories, right? We Even without thinking of a specific one, we've all heard the stories uh, wherein some intrepid explorer encounters a tribe of people who had no knowledge of the outside world, right? Mm-hmm. I, I remember thinking that these were relatively, I don't know, fictionalized things growing up. Yeah. Like fair – I don't want to say fairy tales but fictional adventure stories. Yes, they're – they're p- depicted in film and in um, books all over the place, various fictional ones and non-fictional mm-hmm. uh, encounters of this sort. And the, I think that line gets blurred a little bit in our in our popular culture of what what a real encounter looks like and what a uh, a played up one looks like for the screen. Right. That's a very important point. In the modern age, it seems like these events and encounters, whether they were truthful, whether they were fiction, or whether they were a blend of the two, Mm -hmm. usually to make someone from the West feel more important about themselves. Or less like they were colonizers. Or less like they were colonizers. That's true. Uh, Regardless, nowadays, it seems like most of these events or encounters are going to be relegated to history books. In short... Everyone has met everyone or is aware of everyone, right? We all get it. Everyone is at least aware enough that there's an outside world, like a tribe. Most sure. most tribes of isolated people are aware that there's an outside world with some technology in it. Right. And it is sadly true that there are many countries that – people in other countries aren't very much aware of, you know? Yes. Like uh, you've seen – especially – uh, European media gives people in the U.S. A, a real devil of a time with this. And you can see numerous YouTube compilations of Americans being asked to point to a country on the map, on the world map, and getting it cartoonishly yeah. wrong. Uh, that's a little bit of a stereotype. Well, <laughs> I, I promise people are ch- – I promise the editors are cherry-picking that for all our non-American listeners. We certainly hope so. We certainly hope so. And regardless of how hilarious those videos might be, Matt, your point, I would say, is absolutely correct. We are aware of the other. We are aware that it exists. There will be a – you know, the majority of people who live in China will probably never travel to the states. And the majority of people who live in the states will probably never travel to China. But both are aware that the other country exists and is a real thing. Thank you, television and internet. Thank you, television and and books. Yes. (laughs) Uh, In a world, though, where everything is rapidly urbanizing, right? I I think it was what while you and I were first working together, the shift occurred and the majority of human beings began to live in cities. Yes, we've been working together for a long time. And it sounds like around 2014, that's when we – 
we went past the 50% mark. Yeah, by 2014, 54% of the world's population lived in an urban area. Wow. And that shift is pretty crazy, right? Pretty recent too. Yeah, it's it's definitely um, a condensing of humanity into mm. these places that uh, for better or for worse, do really well for various economies and for populations, but not so great in a lot of other ways. You know, mm. pollution, crime, <laughs> a lot of those things. Right, right, exactly. And in this in this world where there are increasingly fewer isolated populations and a larger number of densely, let's say, densely combined mm -hmm. populations, we can understand why people would think there, there are no more uncontacted tribes. There are many people who say that's a myth because so many anthropologists of the past and days of yore wanted mm. to be the first outsider to encounter some group. That probably – that has happened, right? Yeah. But a, a hard definition of an uncontacted tribe as in someone who is – some group that has never seen nor, as they say in Tennessee, heard tell of any other group, the odds of that still existing are, are preposterously low, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with something as simple as Google Maps mm -hmm. where you can, you can open it up and you can see – Every island, because we have the satellite imagery, we know that that island exists there, wherever it is, as isolated as it is, that island exists here in this program. So obviously, somebody's been there, right? That's the assumption, at least, or right. you could go there. So why, why wouldn't have someone gone there already? Right. And then there's that related point. Maybe there aren't any uncontacted tribes, but maybe the human... Uh, experiment has grown so large that there aren't even any really isolated tribes anymore. Yeah. Right? That's the assumption. That's a safe assumption. But the problem is that could not be further from the truth. Today's episode concerns a particular community that you may not have heard of on a tiny island off the coast of India, one that is lost to time. Again, it's called North Sentinel Island. It's relatively tiny. It's just 72 square kilometers. That's uh, 28 square miles. Um, and it's uh, – well, that's before the 2004 earthquake because the yeah. the landmass changed slightly there. Mm -hmm. uh, it expanded. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's a part of the Andaman Archipelago. This is a grouping of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. It's located at the crux of the Bay of Bengal and the Andaman Sea. Now, uh, just we're going to give you some degrees here so you can find it on your globe if you've got one handy. They're between 6 degrees and 14 degrees north latitude and 92 degrees and 94 degrees east longitude. Now, that's 1,400 kilometers from mainland India on that's one like, side. That's like 170 miles. Yeah, and then 1,000 kilometers from Thailand. And that is about 621 miles. So it's kind of... In the center of those, basically, if you zoom out far enough on Google, on Google Maps and you draw a line between the center of, in this case, I'm using Sri Lanka because it's like the island at the bottom of India there, and to the center of Thailand, this would be located pretty close to the center of that line, mm -hmm. yeah, just if you're looking at Google Maps or something. And it's um, th these these two sets of islands, the Andaman and the Nicobar Islands. It's it's some of the most remote spots on the entire planet. Yes. Some of the islands around this area are uh, referred to in one of my absolute favorite books in the world, The Atlas of Remote Islands. I highly recommend you check it out if you are interested in exploration and remote locations. It's a great book, but enough about that book. Yeah. Uh, the islands, just on their own, there are, what, nearly 600 and only nine are open to foreign tourists. Yeah. Very, very rural locations in, a, in addition to being very remote. But, Who, but they yeah. are open to tourism, those nine. Those and nine. That, those come into play in the yeah. rest of our story yeah, here. Yeah, they're very much open to tourism. Uh, locals be damned, yeah. honestly. And – you might say, well, who owns this, guys? Uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at pointing to countries on the map, and I've never heard of a country called the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. No worries. 
trick question. <laughs> there is no country. It is a territory of India, and it is controlled by India. It's generally speaking, it's composed of these two islands. And think about it in terms of latitude. So any of the islands located north of 10 degrees latitude are known as Andaman Islands, while islands located south of that latitude are called Nicobar Islands. That's easy enough. That's pretty easy. Nominally, these territories and the island we're talking about today, North Sentinel Island, uh, belong in the South Andaman Administrative District, which is again part of this Indian territory. The nearby South Sentinel Island is uninhabited. It occasionally receives visitors, uh, mostly adventurous divers who mm -hmm. are like, yeah, bro, let's go somewhere where no one has, like, ever been. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm, I'm sure they don't sound like that. And I'm sure they sound exactly like well, that. Well, people who, people who want adventure. Yes. No one lives there. And here's the thing. Although the government of India legally possesses both North and South Sentinel Island, and again, all of the Andamans, all of the Nicobar Islands, they do not have any installations, no government, no scheduled route of transportation to visit the area. People can visit South Sentinel Island and often probably sneak there yeah. just to dive for a day or something. Like going without a lifeguard, basically. Right. But all the ships in the nearby area and all the planes are banned from approaching North Sentinel Island through the use of a three-mile exclusion zone. Because, you see, unlike South Sentinel Island, North Sentinel Island is inhabited. But by who, you might ask? Well, we'll tell you right after a quick word from our sponsor. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're gonna get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you, here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. <laughs> but it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is 
finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning. And now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Stacy thought she had the perfect husband. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover for Justin Rutherford to hide behind. They led me into the house, and I mean, it was like a movie. He was sitting at our kitchen table. The cops were guarding him. Stacy learned how far her husband would go to save himself. I slept with a loaded gun next to my bed. He did not just say, I wish he was dead. He actually gave details and explained different scenarios on how to kill him. He, to me, is scarier than Jeffrey Dahmer. Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's where it gets crazy. The answer to your question, Matt, that you posed before the break is, we don't really know. The residents of North Sentinel Island, the Sentinelese, are one of the most mysterious populations on the planet. And there aren't many of them. Estimates range from as few as 50 people to maybe as many as 400. The last census that the Indian government conducted that touched upon that area uh, only found 15 people. I yeah. think three women and 12 men. But – Yeah, that that's something we're going to see here as we get into the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that you find when you're searching for people mm-hmm. on North Sentinel Island generally aren't the – all of the people that are on the island. Right. Because, you see, when they conducted that most recent census, the way they conducted it was by taking a boat by, getting special permission to yeah. go inside the inclu- the exclusion zone and then trying to get close enough to see if there was anyone on the shore and then immediately hightailing it out post-haste. And there's a reason for that. They are violently opposed to outside contact of any kind. This behavior has been universally consistent for thousands of years. They've resided on this island, this population, living in much the same manner as their ancestors for millennia. And from what we can guess, the Sentinelese people practice traditional hunting and gathering with no – I mean, I think it's a leap to say no knowledge of agriculture, but no practice of it. Yeah, there, there's no evidence of agriculture that's been seen in the few times that people have actually gotten close enough to check it out. Um, their diet consists of mostly fruits, plants, stuff that's found on the island, coconuts, forest plants. Uh, sometimes they'll, they've been known to eat sea turtles, fish, some small birds, and wild honey. And some researchers compare the Sentinelese to the Onge tribe, which is another uh, tribe that's on the Andamanese islands. They're indigenous peoples to one of the other islands. And it, we should just say here that the Sentinelese, that name is a name given to them. If you right. were ever to speak with one and could speak with someone of you know the North Sentinel Island, they would not call themselves that. Right, exactly. This this culture has uh, several barriers to communication. Yes. And we'll get to these, but the, the Onge are an excellent example of the – one of the closest analogs that we have. Sure. To this population, at least we being the part of the species that doesn't live on this island. Yes. We who are forced to guess. So like the Sentinelese – the Onge were hunter-gatherers, living out an ancient tradition, an ancient set 
of subsistence practices, right, that date back, by the way, to some of the earliest human civilization practices that we know of today. So these are doing – these people are doing some of the first things that people did. Still. Uh, well, the Sentinelese, we suspect. Yes, not the Onge. Yes, because unlike the Sentinelese, the Onge were somewhat assimilated to their detriment. In 1901, the population was registered at 672. After colonization, there were fewer than 100 left ultimately. Like it, the number kept going down. In the 50s, it was only 150 or so. And this was due to the brutal acts of the colonizers, also unanticipated factors like exposure to non-native diseases. Which is one of the biggest problems when right. making contact. Right, right, right. It's one of the problems with uh, when Europeans came to the North and South American continents, the well, same things occurred. For them, it wasn't a problem. It was a – Right. Yeah. Well, I'm saying for the native population yes, yes, of the time, yes. it, was a, it was a horrific thing. Yes. And there's something else here that on a personal level mystifies and disturbs me. And it does it, – it, it disturbs me because I, I can't explain why it's happening and I don't understand. And I don't think that there's any technology that people would have had to do this on purpose. There's something deeper at play. Well, anyway, um, too much preface. Here, here's what's happening. Today, the Onge is still around, but a major cause of the decline in the population is both the changes in food habits brought about by contact with the outside world. But here's the scary thing. Nowadays, they're one of the least fertile and most sterile communities on the planet. About 40% of married couples are sterile. Onge women rarely become pregnant before the age of 28. Infant and child mortality is in the range of 40%. Now we could explain we we could explain infant and child mortality due to, you know, quality of life, right? For the family, for the mother, for the kid, so on. But the idea that an entire population without, you know, some clear environmental cause just starts to dwindle that way. Yeah, I don't like that at all. It's frightening. It's it's uh, not it's not something that I can explain. I would welcome anybody to write to us and let us know. You know, is there some epigenetic factor at play? Did the community decide not to have children, or is there some kind of outside force that's acting on them some in some way? Right. Chemical exposure of some sort that they're unaware of. Like forced sterilization, which many governments mm -hmm. have done, uh, which would – yeah, which would be explicable. At least that's a mundane cause. Yeah. That's less scary than some sort of switch turning. You know what I mean? Yeah. So also the Onge – have been victims of sexual exploitation and alcoholism, forced labor, all the all the terrible and expected things that happen often to these tribes. So there may be a lesson for us to learn with the Sentinelese uh, through the perspective of the Onge. Observers have compared the Sentinelese community to communities that existed in the Stone Age. They make weapons. They make tools. Uh, they're pretty badass with bows and arrows. Yeah. It's like 300-something feet they can get mm -hmm. you with an arrow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 300, 400, I think. Uh, they do not appear to make fire, at least, again, from what we can observe. And their language is unclassified, meaning it's unintelligible even to tribal communities from close-by islands – like they brought an Onge person there to attempt to speak with them, but they either couldn't get close enough to understand the shouting because of all the arrows or they simply have been – the Sentinelese simply have been isolated for so long, again, for thousands of years and their language has become its own unintelligible thing. Yeah. That, that's that, – that is incredible because that certainly doesn't happen. That's one of the least 
regularly occurring things to have and a language that is so isolated. That's incredible. Now, prior to to the European encroachment, well, that's what we're going to call it there, mm-hmm. um, there were ancient traditions by the, the tribes people who lived around North Sentinel Island that the people on North Sentinel Island were cannibals. The Onge, they, they apparently were aware of North Sentinel Islands for some time, but the first European report didn't actually occur until 1771. Hmm. which isn't that long ago, just before the United States became a thing. <laughs> oh, that's true, Matt. I didn't think of it in that perspective. Yeah, this British surveyor named John Ritchie passed the island on a ship called the Diligent. Uh, the Diligent was a hydrographic survey vessel owned by the East India Company. Paul, can we get a spooky sound effect when we say East India Company? Just booze. Just put put some booze in there. Perfect. That's appropriate. Yeah. (laughs) So Richie made one note where he essentially said he saw a multitude of lights. We don't know if this means fires. Yeah. Uh, But he saw it from a distance. He made a short note about it. The boat continued on and no one in the West would make any sort of reference to this island for another hundred years. Yeah. It's just the one guy who's like, oh, whoa, look at that. That's a, that's not water. (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely an island. Mm -hmm. Bye. So we fast forward to March 1867. That's when Jeremiah Humphrey, he's the officer in charge of the Andamanese. He journeyed to North Sentinel Island on the trail of some convicts who escaped from this penal colony that was there called Port Blair. And, okay, so he... He's approaching the island. He's escorted by police and uh, what they're called Great Andamanese. And these are tribes people from, like again, kind of like what we were discussing before, uh, a different tribe, but I guess similar enough to where perhaps there could be communication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He saw whoosh, whoosh, some 10 men on the beach, naked, long-haired, with bows and arrows, shooting fish. Mm-hmm. And apparently the Sentinelese spotted the boat and they hid. And the great Andamanese on board were visibly frightened and warned Humphrey, the, the leader here, mm-hmm. that the islanders had a reputation for cannibalism. And uh, Humphrey said, yep, I'm not going there. Which so was, he, he never actually landed. Yeah, which was surprisingly uh, smart of him, right, to listen to the experts in the area. He did have a police escort with him. So mm-hmm. it, it is fascinating that. He didn't, but I guess maybe he just wasn't – he wasn't confident enough in the people there with him. Sure. I don't know. Well, also notice that at this point, despite this reputation, I'm sure it's largely exaggerated for cannibalism. Yeah. Uh, the Sentinelese are hiding. They're avoiding and evading, right? They're not confronting. And then also there's a note here – they're described as long-haired by yeah. Humphrey. But when you see footage of the Sentinelese people today, there are no long-haired people. There is just a little bit of footage and you're right. Mm-hmm. So interesting because it seems as though things are changing. In that same year, again, 1867, uh, an Indian merchant ship called the Nineveh was wrecked on the reef surrounding the shore and their captain was a real piece of work. Yeah. So 86 passengers survived, 20 crew members survived. They make it – they crash on that reef surrounding the island. These are also very treacherous waters and boom, celebration time. Uh, they survived. These, what, 106 people survived. On the third day, the native population, which had been completely in hiding, attacks. The captain – uh, his strategy is to take the ship's lifeboat and run away. Yeah, to get picked up by some other ship that's coming by. Mm-hmm. A passing brig and then a Royal Navy ship came to rescue the remaining survivors who had held the natives off by for several days by throwing stones and brandishing sticks. And again, this is a story that gets around. Mm-hmm. So nobody else goes to that island for another 13 years. Yes, And then in January of 1880, 
an armed British expedition manages a successful landing on North Sentinel Island. They are led by the officer in charge of the Andanamese by this time, a 20-year-old fellow by the name of Maurice Vidal Portman. Uh, They went through the island in search of local people. And they had, again, some uh, people from the greater Andanamese population guiding them. So what did they find? Well, the first thing they came upon were a network of pathways where people had been traveling by foot. Um, there were several freshly abandoned villages that they that they saw. Again, with, with nobody around, they kept surveying the island. They found that it had fertile soil. There were groves of tropical hardwoods and – this this gentleman, Portman, didn't see a single human being other than the people that he brought to the island. So was it a ghost island? Maybe, uh, but I don't think so. Uh, eventually, after several days of searching, the party discovered just six Sentinelese. It was an elderly couple, and they had four children with them. And, you know, as as they tended to do, I guess, in the colonial uh, path – they abducted these six people and they took them with them. Right. Yeah, they took them, the, the parents and the children. The father was by far the oldest of mm-hmm. the six. Uh, they took them back onto the vessel with them. But as soon as they were leaving the island, probably because they were exposed to new uh, diseases, the family fell ill, rapidly ill. The parents died and so – In a strange move, uh, Portman and co. sent the four surviving children back home with presents, the likes of which the Sentinelese community had probably never seen before. And he talked about them in a really smug, condescending way. He said, you know, he didn't feel particularly bad about it. He was annoyed by what he considered to be their mannerisms and idiotic expressions. That's his – Ugh. choice of wording there. And they did send four unaccompanied children back to an island that, to their observation, was uninhabited. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think about that part. <laughs> Just go Lord of the Flies, kids. We'll see you later. Wow. Here's a here's a doll. Yeah, yeah. with your presence. And uh, Portman did go on to visit the island several more times. In August of 1883, uh, they – in August of 1883 – a volcanic explosion was mistaken for the sounds of gunshots and possibly a distress signal. So several search parties go out. Portman's search vessel uh, lands on North Sentinel Island. The native people hide. He doesn't see anyone. Most importantly, he doesn't see a ship in distress. So they just leave more gifts on the shore and they depart. And then over the span of 85 through 1887, he visits a few more times and in his way, again, a very smug, condescending way, Matt, he grows fond of the natives. And we have a quote when he was explaining uh, how his, his chilly heart had warmed to them. In many ways, they closely resemble the average lower class English country schoolboy. As you see, I've only ever seen them running away, except for those four children and the two parents that I killed with my diseases. (laughs) (laughs) So the beginning of that quote is absolutely true. Yes. (laughs) But I think the whole thing really captures the spirit of where it was coming from. Yeah. Maybe a little more self-aware than he was at the time. Uh, But then – you know, uh, there's a relative period of calm because why would you go so far out of your way to visit this place? Yeah, there's it, there doesn't seem to be any interaction that happens, at least if you've read the stories or reports of the previous interactions or lack of. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, no reason. However, in 1896, three escaped Indian convicts fled that Port Blair that we mentioned before. They got on a makeshift raft and they drifted about 30 miles to North Sentinel Island. Here's the deal. Two of the fugitives drowned in the reefs that are surrounding the island, again, that we've mentioned before. Mm -hmm. The one guy, the one survivor, made it to the beach only to be killed. By the natives. By by the natives, ostensibly. Nobody probably saw this, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but that's 
uh, what appeared to have ha- have happened. Uh, a British party later spotted and retrieved his body, and they noticed that it was pierced with with arrows, and his throat was cut. Yep. And after this, North Sentinel Island was left alone for another almost hundred years. But what happened after that? There's more to the story. We'll continue after a word from our sponsor. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning. And now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Stacy thought she had the perfect husband. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover for Justin Rutherford to hide behind. They led me into the house, and I mean, it was like a movie. He was sitting at our kitchen table. The cops were guarding him. Stacy learned how far her husband would go to save himself. I slept with a loaded gun next to my bed. He did not just say, I wish he was dead. He actually gave details and explained different scenarios on how to kill him. He, to me, is scarier than Jeffrey Dahmer. Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
So meanwhile, for the rest of civilization that was not part of the community on North Sentinel Island, a bunch of stuff was happening. You know what I mean? Uh, amazing inventions, new depths of human depravity, wars, peace, uh, beautiful moments. Some of the most amazing people in history are born and forgotten, and the people on this island have not only no real idea about it, but they just don't want to be forced to participate in this whole human experiment. In nearby India in 1947, the country finally gains independence from British rule and with this, it gains control of the Andamans and the Nicobar Islands, including North Sentinel Island. So things are pretty hectic when you become a newly independent country. Sure. And they didn't really get to the concept of North Sentinel Island or the mysterious people living on it uh, for about 20 years. And uh, in 1967, an Indian anthropologist named uh, Trilonath Pandit was summoned by the governor of the Andaman Islands for a major expedition to North Sentinel Island. Pandit was offered the opportunity to become the first anthropologist to land there, accompanied by armed police, naval officers, two large patrol boats, and inflatable rubber dinghies to get around the reef without breaking up a ship Yeah, and getting trapped. Not so good against arrows, though. Not so great. Yeah, not so great against arrows. Uh, later in life, Pondit, when he's talking about why he agreed to do this, he says, there was a feeling that we were trying to establish friendly contact, which would be considered an achievement at the government level. So on the first expedition, the Sentinelese retreat into the jungle and they, they disappear because they know this better than any non-native ever would. Yeah. There's no contact, so the party leaves gifts of buckets, cloth, and candy in the empty huts of the village. But they also they also steal some stuff. Yeah, they did. They called it collecting, but they stole some stuff. And they left blankets and things that could have been tainted. Uh, as we found with uh, American Native populations, something as simple as a blanket can hold a lot of pathogens. Mm -hmm. Can be a vector for disease, right? Mm -hmm. So what what kind of stuff did they take? Oh, they took bows, arrows, there was a basket, and even the painted skull of a wild boar. And they were like, ah, this is ours. Enjoy the things, the, the, the candy. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then they return another trip. Uh, on the 29th of March, 1970, Panda and his party find themselves trapped on the reef flats between North Sentinel Island and Constant Islet. Constance Islet was just a little bit away from the actual island itself. And th when we talked about how the island grew a little bit larger mm -hmm. uh, after the 2004 earthquake and tsunami the same way that the Grinch's heart grew a little bit larger at the end of the film. Spoilers. Uh, now the islet is attached to the island. But beforehand, you could get caught in between there just to give the geography. So they were certain that they were going to be attacked. This is it, thought Pandit and company. So Pandit or Pandit, I, I want to be clear that we are not native speakers, so yeah. maybe mispronouncing this name. Uh, they were certain that this was going to spell the end and that they were going to die in the pursuit of this great anthropological experiment. But something unexpected occurred. So at first, they see that the – they see that two of the natives who were just sort of observing them have realized that they're stuck and more people come out of the cover, more men, more warriors threatening to shoot at them, you know, brandishing their arrows. Uh, and so they try to appease them by giving them fish that they had caught. Mm -hmm. uh, but that didn't work. More more. Dudes were coming at them, getting closer and closer to shoot. Uh, and when they got fish, some of them started to calm down. But other people weren't having it. 
and they were still hostile. So they were still taking the fish, but then just picking the bows back up and getting ready to kill them. So the guys were thinking, eventually, we're going to run out of fish, right? What then? At this moment, and this is a quote from an eyewitness account in the 70s, at this moment, a strange thing happened. A woman paired off with a warrior and sat on the sand in a passionate embrace. This act was being repeated by other women, each claiming a warrior for herself, a sort of community mating, as it were. Thus did the militant group diminish. This continued for quite some time, and when the tempo of this frenzied dance of desire abated, the couples retired into the shade of the jungle. However, some warriors were still on guard. We got close to the shore and threw some more fish, which were immediately retrieved by a few youngsters. It was well past noon, so we headed back to the ship. Wow. So they managed to survive, but they had to watch something very weird and very, yeah. very personal. Interesting. I wonder what kind of – because it must be a show of force in some way. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we're not anthropologists, man. Yeah, maybe it was just the time of day that was the thing that happened at that time. We could we could just think about it all day long. But yeah, I think it's more like I think there's got to be power in there somewhere, right? Maybe a calming effect or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe something ritualistic. Who knows? Who knows? We would like to hear your theories as well. Write to us conspiracy at howstuffworks.com. There are also unproven murders uh, or at least missing person cases associated with the island. Oh, yeah. In that same year of 1970, there was a wreck that was spotted on a coral reef right on the southeast coast of the island. And after people were looking at it to see what the heck's going on here, it was concluded that the vessel had been just sitting there for about seven or eight months. And there was no sign of the crew, no sign of the fate of the crew. So who knows? That one's a, just a mystery. And I don't think we'll ever have a just a concrete uh, reason for why that happened. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the big, the big deal, right? The big tent, as far as the encounters go, uh, it, it's we can tell you the story of the encounter that actually had video footage, which you mentioned earlier, right, Matt? Yeah, it's one of the only existing. It is, really. It's the only existing footage that I have seen of the Sentinelese. It was in the spring of 1974 when there was a a visit by this team of anthropologists and they were filming a documentary called Man in Search of Man. And there was a National Geographic photographer with them. There were also armed police officers. They actually wore padded armor um, that they, they had under these jackets. And again, who's to say what that does against arrows? Uh, hopefully that would have been, you know, some kind of protection, but who knows? Sure. Um, and there is actual footage that you can see. I believe that's the 1974 footage, unless it's from earlier. I, it's the only one that I've seen, I think. Mm-hmm. Then in September 1991, after both confirmed and suspected deaths at the hands of the Sentinelese, the Indian government added this uh, this zone, it's a five-kilometer, three-mile exclusion zone around the island, and it's under the provisions of the Andaman and Nicobar Protection of Aboriginal Tribes Regulation. Um, it's called A-N-P-A-T-R. Yes. Love a good acronym, right? Uh, we we should also add, you know, nobody died in the 1974 incident, but oh, one yeah. guy got shot through the thigh, I think. Uh, the... <laughs> That was their reaction to giving the gifts. Yeah. So it's interesting because before this exclusion zone exists and before it gets extended even, we see this history of people trying to peacefully hide, stay away from us outsiders, and then at some point in this um, occasional, you know, every every few decades, every century or so, in this occasional badgering from the outside world, the Sentinelese stop putting up with this. Well, yeah, who knows what internal folklore they've, they have now for the people that come and visit them every few decades. Yeah, there are, there's, okay, so there are a couple of indications that they might have some ancient myths similar to those of the Onge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just in the, um, the only way we know is that when that 2004 disaster occurred, they got to high ground. So they knew to, they knew that some sort of natural disturbance was coming, and that may be based on 
an oral history about similar events in the distant past shared with uh, the people who would later become known as the Onge. So that's possible. Mm -hmm. But can you imagine, and we're entirely speculating here, Matt, can you imagine what oral histories may exist now based on those four kids who returned? Yeah, right? I mean, that sounds insane, you know? They took me, they killed my parents, they brought me back with this. These strange beings on ships. We we mm -hmm. saw things that looked like this mm -hmm. that we have no way of really describing to you. Right. And these deaths uh, at the hands of the Sentinelese residents still occur. In 2006, two men were illegally fishing for mud crabs off the coast of North Sentinel Island and the Sentinelese killed them. An Indian Coast Guard helicopter tried to go retrieve the bodies and it was warded off by bows and arrows. Yeah. And ambitious explorers and anthropologists attempting to make first contact may have already violated the, the prime directive in some ways. Yeah. They may have accelerated the age of the, cult, the civilization or culture on the island. And by age, I don't mean just age in terms of numbers. I mean the technological age. They may have gone from the Stone Age to something else because we have to remember these are people. They may be living differently than many other people on the planet, but that doesn't make them not human. They're still really smart because human beings are for the most part insanely supervillain level brilliant in comparison to other living things. And that means that they took salvaged metal and they made weapons, they made ornaments, they made jewelry. But as we, as we get to the end of today's show, we know that the, the they in today's episode is the Sentinelese people. And the stuff they don't want you to know is anything about how they live or what their lives are like or what they think about you specifically you, specifically Matt, Paul, Noel, and I as well. They want to be left alone. And is that so bad? What should happen to the residents of the island? We're asking you, should they be left alone, as is apparently their desire, or is it too late already? Will they need assistance as local wildlife dies out, as oceanic uh, biodiversity decreases? You know, when like, like it's all well and good to say that we should leave this community alone, but some people would argue, well, what if environmental catastrophes make their way of life unsustainable? Does the human species have a responsibility to help the people on this island? Yeah. I think there are two I, – I, I see the sides in both of these arguments. Personally, I'm more on the leave them alone side. Yeah. I, every Everything I have ever – witnessed about this this sort of situation tells me that it's it's okay to not want to participate you shouldn't force people to do stuff i, I think you're right there yeah. I, there is a point to be made about perhaps they are just protecting their own and their territory rather than really not wanting to be contacted you know yeah the indian government has never prosecuted them for any of these murders, by the way, and they are murders, uh, or you could call them cultural self-defense. But when we ask this question, we also have to ask I, – I don't want to tilt the scales too much. But we also have to ask ourselves what happened to the other indigenous peoples of these island groups when outsiders contacted them. Well, we have one example that's not the same in, in – really many respects, but we can see the effects that civilization has had on them. They're called the Jarwa. They were a native tribe, a native Andaman tribe. And there is a, they live on one island where there is a road that goes through their reservation, essentially, on this island. They're kind of in the center of the island. And then there's, uh, there are like some tourist areas and other Indian locals who live on the outer side, the mm -hmm. outer rim of the island, mm -hmm. and there's some civilization out there. And this road that goes right through the reservation was in use for a while, but then it was decided by the Indian government that, hey, we should not use this road anymore. We're, we're interrupting the life of this tribe. 
this relatively uncontacted tribe because I think 1998 was the first time that they were officially contacted. Mm-hmm. Um, but then tourism kind of became the thing where this road uh, began they, – they, these companies started taking human safaris down this road where they would get in you know, vans at large jeeps and pay people money to take these trips to perhaps get a chance look at some of these tribes people just living their lives and looking at them as though they're in a zoo or something. Um, it's a pretty horrifying thought. Mm-hmm. Um, especially just it's, it feels very icky first of all but then the second thing is that you are disturbing these people in their way of life every time a single vehicle goes by on this road that they make an encounter um, it, it's it's pretty crazy you can also just grab a taxi by the way and go through there you do have to get through a military checkpoint mm-hmm. and you are not allowed at least according to the authorities there and all the signs they put up you're not allowed to take any pictures photography or video of the Jarwa tribe, which is, I guess, a good thing. But how do you police, you know, that many people and that many vehicles going through at -hmm. the time? It's just not great. And the other thing are destination resorts, which are all around these islands, specifically those nine islands that are inhabited, um, or I guess eight. But um, there are resorts and there's a tradition for local peoples who live on these islands, peoples of, I guess, Western civilization, who burn their refuse. That's what they do. They've got, you know, their small residences and they burn their trash. These larger resorts, though, make so much trash that there's no way to really burn it mm. with, without creating massive issues. So then it becomes a different massive issue where it's just a giant pile of trash and there are multiple resorts around this, uh, these islands. So anyway, that's just a, one thing to think about if North Sentinel Island ever becomes contacted to the point where there are buildings and businesses being put up on the island, mm-hmm. we can kind of see what might happen to the tribe. Right. Yeah. You can also, in addition to the points you've made, Matt, you can, you can also check out videos of some of these native people uh, being taunted to dance for food and yeah. uh, and similar things like that. So the question is now that we know the stuff they don't want you to know on the Sentinelese side, what is humanity to do? Is the government of India correct to create this exclusion zone and to force all traffic to keep this island essentially lost in time? Or should something else be done? If so, what? And if so, how? We we don't have the answers. I mean, clearly, Matt, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're also on the side of leave them alone. Yes, but I'm aware of the inevitability that they will, I mean, they will be engulfed by civilization at some point. Hmm. Time is very long and humanity expands ever so. Well, let me ask you this. What if, what if someone in the population decides to build several boats and what if they, under their own power, go into the outside world? What then? You oh, know what gosh. I mean? Yeah. It's different because it, that goes both ways, this human need for expansion. So at this point, we don't know the answers. No one does. Uh, we wanted to introduce you to one of the most secret places in the world, right? One of the, one of the places where you most likely will never get to travel. And don't. If and, you do get a chance, just don't. And, and probably you shouldn't, right? Yeah. I'm I'm having a tough time saying that. I know it's the right thing to do, Matt. I know you're right. But again, we want to hear from you. Thank you so much for tuning into the show, friends and neighbors, fellow conspiracy realists. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook, especially our community page. Here's where it gets crazy. And in a lot of those places, we are Conspiracy Stuff or Conspiracy Stuff Show. You can also give us a call and leave a message and you might get on the show. Mm-hmm. You might hear us directly answer to your voice. Hopefully, that's what we'll be doing. All you have to do is give us a call. one eight three three 833 And if 
none of that uh, quite bags your badgers. You can always go relatively old school for the modern age and email us directly. We are conspiracy at howstuffworks.com. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning, and now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Justin Rutherford. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover to hide behind. Detective Weaver said, I'm sure you know why we're here. I was like, what in the world is going on? Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.